is Bean to Barstool, a podcast that looks at the intersections of craft beer and craft chocolate. My name is David Nelson. I'm a professional beer writer and an advanced Cicerone and the creator and host of this show. The music for this episode is by my dear friend, indie folk musician Anna P.S. You can find out more about Anna's music in the show notes or at her website, annapsmusic.com. You can find links and information about our guests in the show notes as well. I hope you enjoy this episode of Bean to Barstool. Hey everyone, this is David. Thanks for listening to the Bean to Barstool podcast. Enjoy. Nostalgia. When I talk to chocolate makers or other chocolate professionals about the tasting experience, about what drew them to chocolate, about what happens when they close their eyes with a piece of chocolate on their tongues, that's the one word that comes from their lips more often than any other. No matter how sophisticated our palates become, we never outgrow our early experiences of flavor-based delight from childhood, and we carry those experiences with us as we engage with food and drink as adults. The chocolate we enjoy now is better and more expensive than those cheap treats we enjoyed as kids, but often the craft chocolate we enjoy today serves to remind us of simpler flavors from simpler times. Last winter, I was talking with Mackenzie Rivers from Map Chocolate and asked her for recommendations for new chocolate makers to check out. What had she been blown away by recently? The first name out of her mouth was Nostalgia Chocolate. That guy really knows what he's doing, she said. Mackenzie knows a thing or two about nostalgia in the tasting experience, the ways chocolate can pluck the strings of our memory to make our hearts and minds play songs our fingers never could, so I took her word for it on a chocolate maker with such an auspicious name and placed an order. And Mackenzie was right. In the Madagascar Samburano Valley 70% bar, for example, there's a gentle walnut or cashew-like nuttiness up front, and then that telltale Madagascar acidic fruitiness, but more restrained than it often is, making its presence known without completely taking over, radiating its sunny warmth throughout the bar without stealing the show. I bookmarked Nostalgia as a maker to keep an eye on, and was thrilled a couple months ago when co-founder Tyler Cagwin emailed me to let me know that he was partnering with a couple breweries in his area on chocolate beers, and was even using locally grown hops in a new limited edition bar. I couldn't wait to see and taste what this talented maker did with the flavors of beer ingredients, and when I finally got to taste the hops-aged bar, I wasn't disappointed. Join me as we talk with Tyler and his partners in crime about these beautiful and, appropriately, nostalgic unions of beer and chocolate. I've been making chocolate now for about three and a half years. The The whole craft chocolate world kind of came to me uh, in two main ways. One, uh, when we were on our honeymoon and finished up in Grenada and visited the Grenada Chocolate Company. And that was really the first time I'd ever tried, you know, kind of any higher quality chocolate. And then about a year and a half or so later, we were in Costa Rica leading a yoga retreat and a young couple came onto the retreat center that made their chocolate locally down in on the Osa Peninsula in Costa Rica. And the chocolate was outstanding. And then I, I came back after that a couple of weeks later, it kind of popped into my mind that, you know, there must be a way that I can do it. So that kind of started my whole journey. That's Tyler Cagwin, who co-founded Nostalgia Chocolate with his wife Tiffany in March 2018, though as you heard, the roots of this project reach farther back into their lives than three and a half years ago. As the couple and Tiffany's son sat down to discuss plans for the venture, they wanted a name that would evoke the best parts of running a family business, and the sense of childlike wonder that chocolate evokes. Nostalgia Chocolate was born. 
Once he got his hands dirty with the chocolate-making process, Tyler fell in love with the range of cacao origins available to him, and he sources cacao from as many places as he can get his hands on. So the majority of my cacao comes from Meridian Cacao. Um, I work a lot with Gino, the owner. I also have a couple origins that I get from Uncommon Cacao. I'm just starting to work with Osito Coffee. Um, they're starting to import cacao from Colombia, and I'm actually uh, have their first couple bags that I'll be picking up next week. So I'm going to work through them. And then I have two origins, my Costa Rica Hacienda Azul beans, and also my beans from the Tabasco region of Mexico, where I work directly with representatives from the farms uh, where the cacao is grown. Wherever I can find it and I like it, I'll take it. Tyler's single origin bars are delightful, showcasing the flavor potential of their origins while maintaining balance and restraint, offering nuance rather than noise. His newest bar, however, is not so subtle, and that actually suits its unique inclusion more commonly found in beer just fine. I asked Tyler to share the story of how his hops-aged 70% dark chocolate bar came to be. A couple of years ago, we, we spent two weeks in Sicily, and if anybody's ever been to Sicily, they might be familiar with Modica. And Modica is a big chocolate place in Sicily, but they still, they make chocolate in sort of the classic way where it's very grainy and and not tempered, not ground down. And so it's a very different kind of chocolate. But one of the places we went to had a whole wall of of their chocolate that they were aging in different things, tobacco, different spices. And so, so that got my mind thinking. Before the pandemic, so fall of 2019, uh, my friend um, Chad from the vineyard in a suburb of Syracuse, he, he grows and processes hops. So I contacted him and I said, I just kind of have this strange idea. I'd, I'd like to play around with hops and chocolate. So I got some of the fresh cones uh, that, that were, hadn't been processed yet. So I aged a batch of bars in those. And then he also gave me pellets to try to put in the chocolate. And then also gave me some like a hop concentrate kind mm-hmm. of, and I knew that wouldn't work because that's liquid and liquid can't go in chocolate. But sure. so, so I, I aged the bars and the hops first and that came out, I gave it to a ton of people that I knew loved beer and they were, they loved it. <laughs> I mean, I thought it tasted pretty unique and interesting, but I was really happy at the response that it got. So uh, I knew I wanted to do it again. Last year was obviously tough, just kind of timing and, you know, just trying to be respectful of, you know, people's pandemic and feelings and stuff like that. But I contacted them this year and I said, Hey guys, I've got, I kind of have the bandwidth. I have a new origin from uh, Coco Camilli in Tanzania that I'm working with. And I think this will be a great, a great bar to kind of play around with. So I went out and the hop harvest has really just ended about the week that I went out to pick the Chinook hops up. We smelled a few different kinds. Chad felt that the Chinook hops would be the best ones to try piney, little fruity bitterness, but has a a tinge of sweetness to it. Mm -hmm. And so I made four-ish batches of bars. Each batch of mine is about 40 bars. And then, uh, so put a layer of the hops down and then a layer of bars, layer of hops, layer of bars, and, and did that until I could fill up the airtight bins. So I had four airtight bins and then I just shut them up and didn't open them until this past week, actually, and opened them up and tried them and they, they were pretty well aged. And so here we are. So how long did the bars sit on the hops then? About three weeks. Yeah. That's why we always encourage people to not put chocolate in a refrigerator or in buy spices in a cabinet because the the chocolate is very absorbent of other flavors. And, and, and as this proves, we now have 
a chocolate bar with notes of wonderful cherry and citrus and cream that tastes like there's an IPA mixed into it. So, <laughs> so you didn't actually use the hops directly in the bar at all, just by sitting there aging on them, it picked up that flavor. Yeah, they did. Yeah. So I tried the pellets in with the, a batch of chocolate and it, when I made the chocolate, it was very strong, very bitter. And so I, I just determined that that really wasn't the way to go. I knew that the aging uh, would work. And this was a, a kind of a, a nice process for me to, to start with, with the hops, you know, can play with some more stuff down the road. It's interesting. You mentioned that Chad pushed you toward the Chinook. When I talked to him, he kind of steered that that was, that was all your selection. You knew what you wanted. Oh, well. You came in a little bit. Tell me about the selection process when you were there tasting hops and doing a sensory process with hops. I love craft beer. I mean, I'm not a, heavy, I'm not a big drinker. I'll have a few beers a week, maybe like three or four. And it mostly happens on the weekends, Mm -hmm. but I do love IPAs. I don't know much about stouts. That's I'm trying to, I'm definitely learning more about them. And and quite frankly, your podcast has been a huge help (laughs) for that, but you know, kind of knowing the smell, I love the smell of IPAs and the smell of the brewery. So I, I sort of knew smell wise, what may or may not work. And I, for the, I'm blanking on the other ones. There were two other types that I, that I smelled, which I thought would work, but at the same time, I think had a little too much sour smell to them. Mm. And, um, so in talking, Chad was like, Oh, wait a second, we got one more. And so we went over to this, uh, Chinook cops and he opened them up and the, the pininess and, uh, the kind of citrusy fruit smell was, I was like, this, this is it. Let's, (laughs) let's try this. So do you feel like the aromas that you picked up directly from the hops came through pretty directly into the chocolate or was there an alteration there in that process? No, I, to be honest with you, it's, it's, it's really amazing to me because the, the first flavor notes you get, this is kind of a weird thing to say, but think of when you drink an IPA, if you took all the liquid out of it and you just, you just had the flavor, like somebody Mm -hmm. shot like IPA gas into your mouth. (laughs) That's, it's kind of a weird thing to say, but that's what you get with the chocolate. So you get that IPA the sweetness, the bitterness, all of the mystery that you get with each different IPA that you taste, you get that in the first kind of notes of the hops. And then uh, as you, as the chocolate melts in your mouth and the flavor notes of the chocolate really start to shine, it's like, it almost kind of (laughs) hugs the hops Mm. and just wraps it all into this like really wonderful chocolate IPA sort of situation. That sounds beautiful. What made you select Coco Camille for the origin for this? It's actually a new origin I've just started working with. It immediately is at the top of my list for bars that I like. And, and all of the other Coco Camille bars I've tried from different makers, I've, I don't think I've found one that I didn't like. Different percentages, different ways of making it. And as I've played around with the roasting of the beans and of the different profiles that I have, I just felt that the sort of cherry notes, the light citrus, the creaminess, but then also the the really rich chocolatey flavors that you get from that bean would just, I just felt it would work really nice. I kind of thought of like a cherry sour ghost. The, the, the chocolate isn't sour, but that with the IPA and it just, that's all, it kind of all mixed in and, and, and the chocolate really paired nicely. That sounds great. So the next time you come around to doing this, do you have anything in mind that you want to do differently or do you like this the way that it is? I really like the way that it is. I mean, it's something I'm only going to make seasonally. 
there's no other way to do it. I've, I've even tried aging the bars and the pellets and it just isn't the same. The, the oils from the hop cones are just the effect that they have on the chocolate is just something truly, truly special. So I, I think right now I don't have any plans to make any changes to it. I'm not even sure I'd really try it with a different origin. I, 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 th- I when I did it before, I, I did it with the Oco Caribe, uh, Dominican Republic origin from Uncommon sure. Cacao. And that came out really, really nice. That has more of a raisin, really nice, juicy raisin sort of flavor to it, um, at least in, in my roast profiles. And that's another nice compliment for it. So I potentially would try a different origin, but the, the Coco Camille is just such a nice bean and bar. It came out really nice. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. Getting a Cicerone certification is an amazing way to raise your beer knowledge and can be a game changer for your beer career. But how are you supposed to find the time to prep and how are you supposed to know exactly what to study? Don't sweat because the Beer Scholar has you covered. Beer Scholar is a sponsor of Bean to Barstool, but I can tell you from personal experience years before I was doing this podcast how helpful the Beer Scholar study guides are. They offer efficient online courses for levels one and two that cover everything you need to know, tips and tricks for how to pass the exams, and include live weekly Zooms to taste and discuss classic beer styles together. They even have a new coaching program for the level three advanced Cicerone exam. I used the Beer Scholar Study Guide to pass my Level 2 exam many years ago. I wish the Level 3 had been around when I took that exam. I had to do it on my own. Wish their study guides had been available for that at the time. The vast majority of certified Cicerones in the world today have used Beer Scholar to help achieve the goal of passing that exam. If you are ready to take your beer career to the next level, visit thebeerscholar.com and check out their online courses. So you mentioned you love IPAs. Do you have a favorite or one that you return to regularly? The most recent one that I've, I've felt I've fallen in love with was from Orono Brewing in Maine. Uh, they're mm-hmm. tubular. My friend works at Industrial Arts down north of the city, oh, and I sure. love everything that Industrial Arts does. <laughs> Bissell Brothers out of Portland, Maine, I really enjoy as well. And so I, I'd say those are, if I can find those at a restaurant or, you know, a store around here, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do, those would probably be my my go-tos. IPA is the most popular family of beer styles within American craft beer, and the beers within this family exist largely to showcase the expressive character of hops. Hops can provide both bitterness and flavor and aroma to beer depending on how they're used during the brewing process, and different substyles of IPA will lean more in one direction or the other, while also varying in the malt and fermentation flavors, color, and mouthfeel characteristics. The most popular style of IPA in the U.S. for most of the history of craft beer, going back to around 1980, has generally just been referred to as American IPA, and it has a good deal of hop bitterness with hop aromas and flavors of pine and citrus. In the late 2000s and early 2010s, bitterness became all the rage, with brewers in a marketing arms race to put out the most bitter IPA they possibly could. Bitterness can be delicious and satisfying when handled right, but thankfully this era of beer is in the past. IPA began a natural trend back toward more moderate levels of bitterness while also showcasing hop aroma from exciting new hop varietals in the 2010s. And around five years ago, a new sub-style of IPA took over as the most popular in the land. 
The New England or Hazy IPA is all about hop aroma, often employing very little hop bitterness like the old IPAs. These IPAs take advantage of the explosive tropical and citrus fruit aromas in newer hop varietals to make incredibly aromatic and flavorful beers. As their name implies, they were first popularized in New England, most notably Vermont, in the early 2000s, though a few beers in this mold popped up in the Pacific Northwest in the late 90s. The style stayed regional, though, until taking over tap lists across the country just in the last few years. The beers we once called American IPAs are now often referred to as West Coast IPAs, a name that used to refer to a sub-style of that style. Yes, craft beer is confusing. I'm always here to help if you have a question. Hops are important to pretty much all beer styles, but IPAs exist to celebrate this remarkable plant, so let's take a minute to discuss what hops are and what they do in a little more detail, and then we'll hear from someone who grows them for a living and provided the hops for Tyler's Hops Aged Chocolate Bar. As I mentioned, hops provide two main things to beer, bitterness and flavor and aroma. The bitterness in hops comes primarily from alpha acids. In their natural state, these alpha acids aren't all that bitter, and they're not all that liquid-soluble either. Brewers unlock these acids by adding the hops to boiling wort, or unfermented beer. The boiling process causes the alpha acids to isomerize and become isoalpha acids, at which point they're significantly more bitter and more liquid-soluble. Isomerization is when a molecule physically reconfigures without adding or removing molecular components. The flavors and aromas we get from hops come from essential oils, and the concentrations and interactions of these oils can be dazzlingly complex. They are highly aromatic, which means they are also highly volatile, and the oils from the hops added early in the boil get lost in the process. Brewers add hops for aroma and flavor late in the boil, just after the boil, or even in the fermenting and conditioning beer later in the process. This extracts the aromatic compounds without extracting much, if any, additional bitterness. Hops are actually flowers, even though they look like little leafy green pine cones. The hops we use in brewing are the female flowers of the Humulus lupulus plant, and they thrive today from about 30 to 52 degrees latitude north or south of the equator. The flowers are made up of small petals that overlap like scales on a fish around a central stalk or strig, and concealed under these petals is a waxy yellow substance called lupulin, which contains most of the good stuff we want for brewing. Hops grow on a vertical vine. That's vine with a B, like boy, rather than V, like Victor. A vine, as in the case of what wine grapes grow on, grows vertically by attaching to a growing surface with tendrils or suckers, while a vine, as in the case of what hops grow on, grows vertically by wrapping its main stalk around the growing surface. In a hop yard, hops are grown on a trellis system of wooden poles connected by strings and wires. Hops grow rapidly and aggressively during the precious few months alive each growing season. Their Latin name translates into small wolf, reaching 18 to 20 feet in height across the summer. They stay alive beneath the soil as rhizomes during the winter and will return again in the spring. Nothing looks quite like a hop yard in the summer, with 20-foot-tall hedgerows of green stacked one after the other across the field. After being harvested, the cones are rapidly dried to preserve them, except for a small amount that will be used in seasonal wet hop beers to show off their fresh aromas, and are then either sold as whole dried cones or processed into compact pellets for easier storage and use. Hop companies have also experimented with many other hop-derived products over the years, and some of these are showing great promise as well. As I mentioned, different hop varietals showcase markedly different aromas and flavors, and this is where hops get really interesting. 
There are well over a hundred commercial hops available now, with more being hybridized and released to growers constantly. There are hop varietals that have been grown and used in brewing since the 19th century, and brand new ones that hit the market each year. The hops used in IPAs are most commonly from North America or from various Pacific nations like Australia or New Zealand. These hops tend to be highly expressive. Name a fruit and there's probably a hop that smells like it, often because they actually share one or more aromatic compounds in common. I've led tastings with hazy IPAs full of tropical fruit aromas and flavors and had attendees who struggled to believe me that there wasn't actually mango or pineapple in the beer. Most of the commercial hops in the United States are grown in the Pacific Northwest states of Washington, Oregon, and Idaho, with the Yakima Valley of Washington looming particularly large. It's common to hear the name Yakima used synecdically to refer to the Pacific Northwest hops industry as a whole. That said, more and more small hop farms have been popping up around the country. There are several very small hop farms right here in my rural Ohio county. There's a wild subspecies of Humulus lupulus that has evolved in New Mexico called Neomexicanus, and hops can even be found growing wild in some parts of the country, often as feral remnants of domestic hop ventures from earlier in the 20th or even 19th centuries. And on that note, we turn to New York State, which was once the largest grower of hops in the country until production shifted west. The combination of prohibition and a fungus called downy mildew largely knocked off the New York hops industry in the early 20th century, and hops growing shifted to the Pacific Northwest to take advantage of better growing conditions. In recent years, however, hops have returned in a big way to the Empire State, and one great example is the Bineyard, run by Chad Meigs in Casanova, just outside Syracuse. Chad founded the Bineyard Hop Farm in 2010. He had started growing hops as a hobby with just four plants, growing galena and pearl hops against his barn. He now has 4,000 hop plants on four acres, with Cascade, Chinook, Comet, Crystal, Galena, and Santium varietals, and he also processes hops for other small farms. He's worked with about 50 of the 450 or so craft breweries in New York, but so far, he's only worked with one craft chocolate maker. I sat down with him recently to talk about the hops for Nostalgia's Hops Aged Bar and asked how his relationship with Tyler began. Tyler's a good family friend. I met him through my wife. He just had some really cool chocolate bars and um, he had infused with all sorts of different flavors and aromas. And I've never really been a huge chocolate person, but I was really into what he was doing. You know, my wife would go down there and bring home a different chocolate bar whenever she saw him. And it was fun. It was almost we did like a, you know, sometimes we do household beer tastings. Uh, we were doing household chocolate tastings, which was nothing that I'd ever really done before. Uh, so Tyler really opened my eyes up to those kinds of things. And he actually asked my wife, Kate, whether we wanted to, you know, get into hops for his his chocolate. So I think it was last year around this time, we just donated him a little bit of hops for him to experiment with. The end product came out really well. And then this year he came back for more. We ended up having Tyler over to the farm and we did some sensory with some of our hops. Uh, he kind of knew what he was going after. So he had, you know, an idea of what uh, he wanted to put into the, to the chocolate, but he didn't know a lot about our various varieties. So between the two of us, we were opening up bales, sticking our faces down in the bales, doing a little rub and sniff. Uh, and we ultimately ended up with Chinook hops. Chinook hops grow really well around this area. They're, they're very common. The characteristics that we were both getting out was kind of like a piney citrus. 
and that's kind of what he was looking for is that citrusy type character. I think the pine really uh, helped with the with the chocolate as well. I think it it blended well. So he decided on that and uh, went with it. And apparently it's uh, progressing very nicely. As a beer writer and educator, I always find it interesting tasting beer with somebody who is not really a beer person because they often bring yeah. a different perspective. What was that sure. sensory experience like with the hops with Tyler coming from the background of chocolate? I, I mean, you could tell he kind of knew what he was doing. You can tell that he has a quote unquote sophisticated palate because he kind of knew what he was going for. He knows what he, what, what he smells. Uh, so, so in that sense, you know, him not knowing the hops was, was not a big deal. You know, Tyler got right into it. He kind of knew what he was he was looking for, he just kind of needed to be pointed in the right direction. So it was, it was, uh, it was, it was a fun afternoon for sure. Here in Ohio, we're starting to get a lot more small hop farms popping up and we're finding that the terroir of the hops changes quite a bit from the Pacific Northwest. You know, something oh, like yeah. Cascade will have a lot of tropical fruit when it's grown here, rather than that cool. classic grapefruit and pine. What are some of those variations that you notice in New York state? Is you know terroir, and I'm really glad that you use that word. We we really try to use that word a lot, actually, and it, it really defines regions, right? So the word I think was used by the grape industry for different regions. You know, the grapes take on different flavors, and hence the wines are a little bit different by by region. Well, that doesn't pertain to just grapes. I think that pertains across the board to pretty much all raw ingredients, you know, and, and hops are no exception to, to, to that rule. So not only are there terroir differences, but there's yield differences. There's all sorts of different things. I think the best example that I could point to was a Galena hop. I've always known a Galena hop to be more of a bittering type hop. So if you buy a Galena hop out in the Pacific Northwest, you're putting it into your brew as an early addition to kind of get that bittering off of it. When we planted all of our, our hops, I wanted one bittering hop and it, I happened to decide on Galena. A couple brewers got their hands on our Galena and they were super in, intrigued with it. I'm like, I, huh, I wonder why they are so interested in this Galena. You know, let's see where this goes. So I gave them a couple pounds of Galena. They went away for a month or two. Uh, and then one day in the mail, I got some bottles of beer. And they had, you know, done a five-gallon batch, homebrew batch, doing doing smash, uh, single hop, single malt. So, you know, the malt and the hops really shine in these particular beers. And it, it was interesting because they did a lager, they did a pale ale, and I, I don't remember what the third style was, but it, it was along the same lines of a beer you wouldn't necessarily see a Galena hop in. And it had this citrusy, almost lemon aromas to it. And it really opened my eyes to what that hop could be for for us uh and i've you know since then i really touted it as more of a dual purpose hop where you can you can add it as, as a late addition you can get more aromas off of it uh and that's really the difference between our area in new york state and the pacific northwest it, it it soil is is huge and even amongst new york state itself uh there are different terroir within within our state it's such a diverse state uh, you know, some out in the, you know, southern tier, there's more sandy soils out towards the mountains of the Adirondacks. You get some more loam and you get some differences even between places in the, in the same state. So for us as a business, uh, we really tout that word terroir. And as I mentioned earlier, we aggregate hops from other farms. We don't blend anything. We keep, you know, Chinook hops from the vineyard, 
separate from the Chinooks hop from Farm Z over some mm-hmm. somewhere else because of terroir. And breweries want that consistency, and they will come back uh, year over year and ask for that particular farm's hops because of terroir, because of what they get out of it. That is that is usually different from you know any other hop grown in any other region. So for beer drinkers who are pretty familiar with the expected flavor profile for Chinook, how might yours differ a little bit from that? We'll be right back. Hey everyone, Final Gravity Issue 4 is now available in the Bean to Barstool shop. This fourth issue of our zine telling intimate, human-centered stories from the world of beer is full of great articles, including Kate Power of Lady Justice Brewing talking about why she might be done with beer festivals, Ukrainian beer writer Lana Svetinkova writing about the Zeugel brewing tradition in Germany, UK writer Matthew Curtis talking about the blend of old and new in the Cascale tradition in Manchester, and many more. We believe passionately in this project, and if you believe the story of beer is ultimately a story about people and relationships, we think you'll love Final Gravity as well. You can order the new issue from our shop on beantobarstool.com, or you can also subscribe, including subscribing for your brewery tap room or break room, or you can subscribe and sign up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash beantobarstoolzines. Now, back to the episode. They're they're a little more earthy, I would say, and the same with the with a with a cascade too. Uh, you get a little more earth character off them. The the pine is pretty pretty similar across the board, but I think we actually get a little more citrus in in, in ours, uh, at least in the Chinook. Uh, that's that's not the case with a with a cascade. The Pacific Northwest are a little more uh, citrusy. So when we were getting into the you know, New England style IPA craze, Cascade hops uh, did not have a good reputation here in New York state. So it actually took a little bit of education on our part as, as a growers talking to the brewers to tell them, hey, this is not the same hop that you're going to get from the Pacific Northwest. If you're looking to make a New England style IPA, you might want to try something a little different. Cascade would be good for these other styles. It's been a learning process for all of us. Tell me briefly about your region of New York, the topography and microclimate where you are. We're officially central New York. So when you see a map in New York City, we're pretty much smack dab in the center. If you talk to anyone you know, down in New York City, everything is upstate, but we, <laughs> we are officially central New York. So we're a little bit east of the Finger Lakes and where the Finger Lakes are, that's where all the grapes and you know the famous Rieslings are, uh, but we're not up in, in the mountains. Uh, so it's kind of a combination of a lot of different soil types. So on our particular farm, it's, it's more of a sandy loam, uh, more, more loam than sand, I would, I would say. Uh, we don't have many microclimates like you would find in the Finger Lakes region, but we are on kind of a hillside, so we don't get a lot of stale air. We got a lot of airflow. For, for me, I didn't really understand the importance of soil when I first started getting into this a decade ago, you know, by the way, I have zero agriculture background. <laughs> I now know, I now understand what it takes. And I was just dumb luck to end up where we are now, uh, being on a plot of land that would actually be good for hops. Sure. So I consider myself fortunate there. What is it like for you getting to taste a beer with your hops in it? It's super rewarding. It's, it's really cool. And I love it when brewers call me up and they say, Hey, that beer we just made with your hops came out, you know, 
come down and check it out. That's, that's like my favorite thing. Uh, you go down, you sit down with a brewer and, you know, you taste it and they want to know what you think about it. And then I want to know what they think about it. And each experience is a little different depending on who the brewer is, but everything is valuable. You know, for some certain hops, I don't necessarily like to tell brewers, hey, this, I get pine and citrus off this. Like I, I want them to, to, to tell me what they get off of it. Cause you could have two brewers, two different rooms smelling the exact same hop and they will find different characteristics out of those hops. Has tasting Tyler's chocolate and partnering with him on this inspired you to try other chocolates and get into that a little more? Absolutely. I mean, for me, and you're going to shoot me for saying this chocolate was always like Hershey's, right? You know, and that's, that is so not true. That's like saying beer is Budweiser. So it's really opened me up to what chocolate can be and just what food is in general. So it's been a really cool experience. And I've always been looking for alternative channels for, for our hops pretty much now, you know, 99.9% of all of it goes to, to breweries, but there's a lot of applications out there that could use our hops in you know, various ways. And chocolate is just one of them. So I, I've been very fortunate uh, to have Tyler in my life and, you know, really be able to open my eyes up to the world of, of chocolate and the, the mesh of, of hops and chocolate, which I think really works. What story are your hops telling? I'm going to go back to the word terroir. You know, it's really telling the story of what our region is. For, for me, you know, to be able to grow that Galena hop that imparts different flavors than you would get, you know, a mass-produced Galena out in the Pacific Northwest, that a brewer can actually brew something specific from a hop that was grown in our land under those growing conditions is really the story for me. That that just proves that terroir is a real thing. And, and yes, there are doubters out there. Uh, but that's really the story that our hops tell is, is, is you know, unique to, to our area, unique apart from pretty much everybody else. Uh, and that's really the story that I tell brewers when I go in, you know, trying to sell them hops for the, for the first time is, you know, these are a little bit different than what you find out there mass produced. Sounds like Tyler needs to do something with the Galena hops. You keep bringing those up. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. We, we actually did a little tasting on them. He did like them. And we actually, I think it was, it was, it was a close second. Cause I, cause I do tend to push them uh, a little more just cause I'm, you know, pretty psyched about them, but what he wanted, I think the Chinook ended up being just a little better fit. Nostalgia's hops aged 70% dark chocolate bar with cacao from Coco Camille in Tanzania is pretty remarkable particularly if you already know and love the aroma of hops. It smells like orange creamsicle with green tea and fresh green hops layered over the underlying chocolate. The flavor keeps that basic shape but diversifies with orange zest, lemon pepper, and berry notes from the cacao. There's a subtle underlying acidity, some green bitterness from the hops, and a bit of earthiness. It's a bit like biting into a chocolate-covered orange slice in the middle of a hop field. I can't wait for Tyler to try more variations of this bar. Tyler's collaborations in the beer world have also run the other way, with brewers making beer with his cacao. One recent example was with Myers Creek Brewing in Casanova, which opened in August 2020. I asked Tyler about the genesis of this partnership. Yeah, so I'm uh, working with the guys at Myers Creek, which is a, a farmstead brewery just outside of Syracuse in a town called Casanova. I approached them back in the springtime, and they were gracious enough to take the time to meet with me. I took out five different samples of nibs 
and as well as the accompanying bars, just so they could taste it both ways. And we did a sort of a nib tasting and it was, it was really, really neat for me to see their eyes open up when tasting different origins of nibs, because I think in the, in the brewery world, and I actually find this a lot, even in the restaurant world, people don't know that, you know, a Dominican Republic, even two different Dominican Republic origins, which I have taste drastically different Mm -hmm. and their nibs will have drastically different effects on the beer that they're trying to make. So it was a really fun process and the Porter that they're making with, they landed on the Coco Camilli nibs for, for their Porter as well. You know, I am excited to, to taste the Porter. It's, I think it's just about ready to be released and It'll be cool for me because this is the first brewery that I've worked with. So to have that experience and be able to taste the chocolate in a completely different way, it's, you know, I've tasted it in restaurant desserts, in my own baking and the chocolate bars. And then now to have it tasted the chocolate that I've roasted in, in a beer is going to be really, really cool. Yeah, I bet. And is that a pretty standard base porter or do you know if they're doing anything unique there? To my knowledge, it's, it's like a standard porter. I think this was a good kind of trial for them to step up from an industrially roasted nib, basically, um, even though it's, they're getting good quality nibs, but to have it roasted the day or two before they were dumping it into the beer. And I, I had them taste fresh roasted nibs versus nibs that were, you know, it, that I had that were aged a couple of weeks. And even the, the taste difference there was, was very uh, noticeable even for them. And then hopefully we can continue to talk about different options and different things they can use the nibs for. Yeah, for sure. Chad was mentioning that it was really interesting doing the sensory analysis with hops with you, since you're not from that same background, you mentioned tasting the nibs with the brewers. What was it like talking and tasting through those with them where they have that totally different sensory background and vocabulary? Yeah, it was, it was really neat. You know, we, we've been trained that chocolate is one thing. There's a lot of different makers, but it's one thing. And to, to be able to work with people, to have them experience all of the different chocolates that there are, even at just the nib level and kind of get them to think about where the chocolate's coming from, which was sort of one of my first experiences before I started making chocolate was learning where chocolate comes from. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. And, and that just makes your mind wander. And so watching them taste the nibs and then sit back and think about it and say, oh, I'm, I'm getting a cashew flavor or, oh yeah, I I can taste the sort of citrus aspect of the Madagascar and to have them like, think about it and say, well, well, this would pair really well with this. And, And I think this one would be an option for here. So opening those doors to also kind of, so to speak, stoke the fire of their creativity was, was really neat. I talked recently with Director of Brewing Operations Jordan Pollock and Brewmaster Ivan Didek about this first beer they brewed with Tyler's Cacao. The beer is called Chalky Milk, and the artwork features Baby Yoda sipping beer from a can through a straw. I asked Jordan about the experience of tasting and selecting cacao with Tyler for this beer. Tyler came in, and, and Ivan and I got to try some different nibs and different bars, and just going from Costa Rica to Tanzanian to... Guatemalan, you know, kind of showing all the different flavor profiles of like these roasted nibs that, I mean, were just incredible. Ivan, tell me a little bit about that beer, the Chalky Milk. Chalky Milk is a porter with Tanzanian cocoa nibs. 
and some lactose in there and vanilla. So it's a full body beer with the sweet notes of the cacao as well as the vanilla to kind of lighten it up. And really the one thing that shines through there is those fresh cocoa nibs. He roasted those, I believe, the day before usage. So they were super fresh when they came in and it really shows through in the beer. What led to selecting the Tanzania origin? That was a tasting panel. A bunch of us all went through and tasted the nibs, went through and then also tried the chocolate. And we had made that previous base beer without the additives to it before. So we kind of were just tasting those nibs with that base beer to see which ones paired the best. So we had our entire brewing staff go through and we all kind of picked which one we liked best. So as a brewer, obviously you're attuned to the flavors of beer. What was it like walking into a somewhat new ingredient like that and going through a tasting panel? We've used nibs in the past, but having Tyler's expertise there to help us out with that and not tell us what we're tasting, but give us some tasting note ideas and kind of what we're going to find in this one in you might pick up blueberries in this nib whereas on this one you're going to get more darker roast or roast beer kind of coffee notes so that was very very helpful from him and that he walked us through a little bit with those things how did you feel those flavors from the nibs came through in the finished beer is that a pretty direct translation or did they change somewhat during the process Obviously, with it being a nib, it's a small percentage of the overall volume of of the beer. So those nibs were much more hit you in the face with flavor, whereas in the beer, it's much more subtle. But the overall flavor profile definitely came through from the nib. It's just not as strong as, as the individual nib or the chocolate itself. Tell me a little bit about your process there. Are you just adding those during secondary? Yeah, so actually how we do that is... We have a piece of equipment called a hop back, which was uh, useful a long time ago in brewing, but in modern brewing, it's not used very often. But what we do is we use that and we'll fill that with the nibs. And then after fermentation, we'll drop out yeast and recirculate the tank through that hop back with the nibs in there. We do that for about 12 to 24 hours to try and extract as much of the flavor out of the nibs as possible. So this was your first partnership with Nostalgia, but it sounds like you're very pleased with what came out of that. What kinds of things could you see doing in the future with Nostalgia's Cacao? We're kicking around a few ideas. We're actually looking at potentially doing something more on the tart side with chocolate just to mess around with. It's not something a lot of people do. It's also kind of an awkward flavor profile. So we're going to try and figure out some options there. We'll definitely continue to do, you know, the maltier beers and things like that. And Imperial Stouts, the cocoa lends itself to that. So we'll continue to do those type of beers in the future with them. For a long time, beer drinkers have just thought of cacao or chocolate as this sort of abstract ingredient that you threw into a beer and it didn't really matter what the origin was. Whereas with coffee and beers, we're starting to get more attention given to where did this coffee come from or what was the process for the the coffee before it was added and all that. What do you see from a story standpoint as being the potential for using a better cacao like this that has a specific origin and a bean to bar maker that you're working with? I would just say, I mean, obviously I am not an expert in it and it's useful having someone who does have that knowledge, who can help us in pairing things and give us ideas on region specific, how, what flavor profiles would pair well with these sort of flavor Mm -hmm. profiles in the beer. 
having a conversation with an individual who's an expert in that area is super helpful because I am not an expert in it. It was just an ingredient and having Tyler help us with that stuff was huge. Jordan, how about you? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's just like you said, you know, people are now using, you know, specialty roasts from different uh, coffee roasters to add, you know, different flavors is like that, that spectrum of flavors in coffee is obviously huge. So, and I think cocoa natives are going to be the same way. And I think that is really, you know, you not only using like someone local who's going to be on site and, and giving us all that information and, and helping us throughout the process, like Tyler did. I mean, it's, it's definitely just a great story in and of itself. You know, use someone who's hands-on instead of just buying a bag of cocoa nibs from wherever and has whatever flavor profile you figure it out when you get there. So <laughs> it's nice. You can kind of tailor something to a specific recipe or that a lot of people have not been doing in the past. Tyler and I continued our conversation by talking about his other brewery collaborations and ideas and concluded by turning a bit more philosophical and talking about the story his chocolate is telling from central New York and his own reflections on the tasting experience. You've also done a collaboration now with Talking Cursive. Yeah, so that one actually hasn't started yet, but in working with Paul, one of the head brewers at Talking Cursive uh, in downtown Syracuse, right now they're planning to do a blonde porter uh, with the nibs. And so we're still working on origin. I think they're leaning towards using the Oco Caribe nibs for that beer. Um, so it, it'll, that'll be really neat when that comes together in the next, uh, you know, few weeks to a month and to see the differences between the, the Coco Camille and a traditional Porter and the Oco Caribe on, you know, sort of a lighter Porter will, will be really neat. And then, you know, hopefully at some point I can make some more inroads and, and, use it in different stouts and, you know, kind of see what the, see what the brewers can come up with from here. Yeah. I wanted to ask if you had plans to kind of make this a branch of what you're doing with nostalgia, working with breweries consistently. Uh, yeah, I would really like to, if I could have, you know, four or five breweries that were using the nibs, even if it was just on a seasonal basis, but somewhat regularly, I would love to, because I do love craft beer so much. And it's really cool to be able to dig my hands into another thing that I have no clue how to do. And I'm amazed at the artwork that comes out of a lot of these breweries these days. So it's cool to kind of pair a passion for chocolate and, uh, you know, a very deep interest in different beers. And like I said, I'm not, I've never been much of a dark beer drinker. So stouts and porters are brand new to me. <laughs> and I mean, your, your podcast has certainly sent me on a lot of searches, some fruitful, some not, but it's, it's taught me a lot about um, darker beers and the complexities. I'm, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm blown away, uh, at, you know, at, at what, at what can be done with hops and wheat and barley and all these different ingredients that, you know, come together and uh, make these products. Yeah, it's amazing with any new artisan food or drink that you decide to get into. It's just a Pandora's box. As soon as you like peel back that lid, there's so much more oh, there than you imagined. Totally. It was the same thing with coffee. I never drank coffee until about six or eight months into making chocolate and a coffee <laughs> roaster came over and did a cupping for me. And I got so caffeinated. I felt like I was drunk. I was a little <laughs> nervous the first time, but I literally had, I'd had maybe two cups of gas station coffee before that in my whole life. And now I'm, now I'm a passionate coffee drinker. And, and I, I love when we travel places, just like finding beers and chocolate. I try to find a local coffee roaster and buy a bag of beans and, and try that out. So 
I love this craft world. And I, you know, no matter what aspect of it is, it's just, it's, it's so great to network with different people. So you've used the hops. Do you have any other plans to use beer or beer ingredients in your bars? There's a lot of different options for ways that can be done. Yeah. I mean, I think at some point I would like to kind of think about it a little bit more. You know, it's one of those things with the liquid aspect of it in the actual bars that I make, if we could include more of that into it or freeze dry, you know, certain beers where we could just, I don't know, pull the flakes out and dump those in, you know, that, that would be really cool. Cause I think that there is a lot more that can be done. I think for right now, working with the hops and, you know, maybe even next year, if, if, you know, these bars go, like, I think, you know, potentially next year, trying to do two different kinds of hops and having, you know, the, the Chinook bar and something else cascade or, or some different kind that we could play around with that way. Yeah. One thing I've seen some makers doing is soaking the nibs in beer and then drying them back out again afterward. There's a brewer in Georgia who took whole cacao fruit and pulp, uh, fermented it in a sour beer took it out, dried it, roasted it, made chocolate, and then used some of it and put it back into a stout. So oh, you could taste it in three wow. different ways. It was, it was really unique to see yeah. kind of that whole story of the one cacao. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I have um, started playing around with aging nibs and whiskey. So that, that is, I never really thought about beer, but, but the eight, but the liquid aging is sort of one of the things I, I would like to play around with more. So I think I think trying, you know, finding a couple of good IPAs and, and trying that would be an interesting experiment. The, the hard part with chocolate that, you know, the, the first phase of the kind of liquefying part of actually making chocolate is actually burning off volatiles. And we want to get rid of acidity and astringency. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a tough thing to find something that is strong enough when, it, when you're soaking the nibs in it, that it will hold on during that process. So yeah, it, I think trying beer w- would be an interesting project for sure. What story do you think your hops bar is telling? Cause I know Chad, I think it's telling a good story of hard work and pride in a craft product. When I think about making the bar, I always envision kind of the first time I went out to their farm a couple of years ago, it's on a remarkable piece of property, but you, you don't feel like you're in central New York. So I, you know, I, I look at the work that's done on Chad's farm and, and this sort of goes with a lot of the bars where I use other ingredients, but I I think about the work that is being done. you know, that's kind of the story. I want people to think about the, you know, the ingredient, not just the cacao. Like I want them to think about Tanzania and the work Mm -hmm. that the team at Coco Camilli does, but I also want them to say, well, what's a vineyard? Like what, maybe even what are hops? Like, what are these things and do some research and, you know, look, you know, I, I want people to learn about it. You are working with chocolate every single day. What is the tasting experience like for you personally now, when you have the chance to sit down with a bar? It's a, it's really an opportunity for me to slow down. And, and that's really what, you know, we've always wanted people to do with our chocolate is good craft chocolate is not cheap. And I want people to buy one of my bars and use it as an opportunity to sit down and find a few minutes in their day to just kick back and really enjoy what's happening in that moment. And and I still embrace that. So, you know, when I sit down and eat a piece of chocolate, it's nice to find a quiet place where there's not as many distractions, chew it a little bit, let it melt in my mouth, try to figure out, you know, what's happening in the bar. Cause for me, figuring out what's happening in, in bar to bar or batch to batch is a huge part of what 
ultimately will continue to grow the company and making things better and trying to bring out the different flavor notes that are, you know, really created by the work at origin with the farmers, you know, the, the work that they do and the care that they put into their trees to give us a high quality product. And really they're the ones through the, the growing and the fermenting where the flavor process starts. So for me, I don't, I don't take that responsibility lightly and each roast that I do, I'm trying to make each one better. And, and I, I find that through the tasting of the chocolate. So I still kind of use it as a kind of a yogic moment, so to speak Mm of, you know, finding some peace and quiet and just really sitting back and enjoying what I'm eating and, you know, breaking it down in my mouth. Do you have a favorite of your own bars? Oh man. I mean, I don't have kids. (laughs) So I I always ask this question. Do you have a favorite child? Um, it, it, in all honesty, it changes batch to batch. You know, my, my bars that I make from Guada, from my Aso Chivite beans from Guatemala, when I first started working with them, they were probably my least favorite, but I had a lot of people that loved them. Mm. But as I've worked with them more, they're consistently probably my favorite. Right now, I think because they're new and I've really been enjoying them, the Reserva Zorzal bar, the 70% bar, and then also my Tanzania bar are probably up there as well. But I mean, Peru and Dominican Republic. I mean, it just, it's, so it's all one of those. Of is what you're saying. Oh, I really, you know, it is. I mean, it, it really is it, it, for, for me to prioritize the rest of them fall. You know, if I, if, if there's a number one, then there's 1.1, 1.2, 1.3. So. I can't pick a favorite of Tyler's bars either, though I'm most intrigued by the hops aged bar. Of course, each allows its origin of cacao to speak, telling the stories of the farmers and processors at origin and displaying Tyler's skills, both learned and intuited in bringing those stories out. In the show notes, you'll find a link to Nostalgia Chocolate's online shop, and I encourage you to follow my advice like I followed Mackenzie's and order some of their bars. As Tyler suggests, slow down and enjoy what's happening in the moment. One of the things I find fascinating about the tasting experience is that memory and nostalgia can begin layering upon themselves. A good beer or chocolate will make me think of an earlier experience in my life, but tasting that same beer or chocolate later might make me remember the first time I had them. Those experiences build on themselves, and the nostalgia compounds, reaching far back to a memory of childhood or travel, but also reaching into recent history to remind me of a previous interaction with this creation. Lean into that process. What we eat and drink is never just about the food or liquid in front of us. It's about stories, those of the growers and makers, as well as our own. Check out some nostalgia chocolate, taste the stories it has to tell, and remember and share your own stories as well. Thanks for listening to Bean to Barstool. 